0: Science
1: helps us to do all sorts of things. It's going to be the the pathway to find us new cures and new treatments and answers to questions we haven't even thought to ask yet and innovations and the source of new job creation. We should fund science like our lives depend on it because quite probably
0: they do. Hello lovely people of podcasts and welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me in the studio this week is, she can introduce herself. Misha Schubert, the CEO of Science and Technology Australia. (laughs) Misha is a very old and dear friend of mine and she is uh, an absolute force of nature in terms of her passion for science. And uh, we both discovered actually that it, it is in fact Science Week this week. It is. And uh, we are in the middle of a pandemic, hmm. self-evidently. and uh, Timely. Timely, <laughs> one would <we> think. <laughs> yes, yes. yes, yes. Science is important. So how, how could we underscore that? Exactly. Yes. 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 And, uh, well, well, we can underscore it by just stating the obvious, which is that science has been our salvation during this pandemic. And, uh, you know, and it will also be the way out of it if... Uh, if we ever get there and let's hope. So anyway, look, there are a million things to talk about and Mish's group is the peak organisation representing about 80,000 scientists and technologists in Australia. And uh, so we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff in this conversation. We're going to talk about workforce. We're going to talk about why science matters. We're going to talk about... Uh, whether or not the government prioritises it sufficiently. So, anyway, let's let's just start modestly, Mish. Let's just start with <laughs> with the science. Let's let's just tell the listeners uh, where is science up to at the moment.
1: Yeah. Um. Well, I think it's a, we're at a really fascinating juncture in where we find ourselves in the kind of long sweep of history around science and research, because as you've rightly pointed out, particularly in the last six months. We've had this very clear sense that science is important to save lives, to keep us safe, to protect us, to navigate through the biggest, most complex challenges that you know, life can, can, can throw at us. Yeah. And so the value of science has perhaps never been so clear to us in this moment in history. And I've been privileged to get a chance to go around the country, virtually speaking, of course, uh, through um, networks in our community and talk with many of those frontline scientists who are actively doing that work day in, day out. So they're on the the front lines of that race for the vaccine hunt Mm. uh, through multiple different pathways of technology. They're the mathematical modellers who've been doing the long-run epidemiological modelling that's trying to help us navigate and chart and, and plan some sensible interventions. They've been doing everything from testing sewage um, to see if COVID, the, the virus mm. is actually moving through populations in a way that's undetected from other ways in which we can pick up where it's it's headed to. They're looking at whether it, how long it lasts on surfaces of different types mm. so that we can actually plan if we're not quite there at a, with a vaccine for how we actually continue to manage some kind of semblance of new normal life, yeah, and they've been doing all of that, and so, in a sense, you know science has been our absolute savior during this period. Without science, we'd be lost. And yet, at the same time, this pandemic has swung this sort of giant wrecking ball through swathes of our economy and society at large. Mm. And it's particularly done so also in our major national scientific institutions, in our universities and our medical research institutes. And so, the scientific workforce on whom we are relying to save us is itself battling these big challenges around job losses, uh, wage cuts, and genuine and carrying some of that weight of the of the anxiety and worry through this period that everyone has been navigating mm. through this time. So there's this sort of um, fascinating kind of um, interplay of those two things happening concurrently in my
0: mind. yeah it's kind of it's kind of amazing, isn't it really? Um, and it's sort of a slightly hidden story in the pandemic because, and this is why I was keen for us to talk this through, because a lot of the frontline day-to-day coverage during the pandemic is you know how many new infections, what governments have or haven't done in terms of you know strategies to flatten the curve, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's sort of well I don't know what would you call it it's very it's very transactional we, we people are sort of hanging on practical information and then analysis and interpretation of what's going on and as you say there's this kind of strangely invisible uh, workforce kind of grinding along in the background there trying to make sure humanity gets out on the other side I mean I suppose it's not entirely hidden is it is it in the sense of Chief medical officers, and 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 that's slightly different to your cohort, but in a way we've seen them kind of emerge, you know, come and 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 brief us every day, really, about what's happening. So there's sort of visibility, yeah. but. Yeah, it's just weird, isn't it? Yeah, uh, but uh, some of those people
1: are stepping more into the limelight. I would, I would say, and so you've seen uh, the appointment of Alan Cheng, Professor Alan Cheng in Victoria. He's now uh, acting chief health officer in that state, but he's played this key role as an epidemiological kind of consultant into that AHPPC committee. Who I can, I can never remember what the acronym actually is. Oh, I'm glad it's
0: hilarious. But it's it's all the chief
1: medical officers plus some technical experts who advise government on health strategy, essentially in a in a a major national health crisis. So you know, he's now more visible as a public figure, a trusted public figure. You've got um, Professor Paul Young and his amazing team of young vaccine hunters in his lab at University of Queensland. Uh, Dr. Keith Chappell and others there who are right out on the forefront of this uh, th- this um, quest for a vaccine with one of the one of the leading candidates globally. You've got um, people like Professor Jodie McVernon and Professor James McCaw at um, the Doherty Institute mm. in Melbourne. Um, one of our uh, team the other day was cripping of Professor Dan Murphy, of course, Peter Doherty uh, famously uh, Googled uh, Dan Murphy <laughs> opening hours in the midst of the, of the crisis, you know, but people like that who we the public wouldn't have heard of before this crisis, but they now are starting to see them so regularly mm. in media uh, appointments. And part of what I really hope is that we will come to know these names almost as readily as we do sporting figures and celebrities in other uh, fields of endeavour mm. mm because they are brilliant. And the other thing I notice constantly about them is they're exceptionally humble people by and large as well. So prodigious brains, brains the size of planets, but this genuine desire to make the world a better place and bringing that. Incredible depth of expertise that they've spent lifetimes building, and our country has spent a lifetime investing in in their capabilities and Mm. expertise as well. We're also quite good as as a country at nicking other people's other countries' great talent as well, (laughs) which is a cheeky kind of Australian science story as well. So, we're really great at at growing some um, incredible talents here that are Australian born and bred, but we're also pretty good at. Uh, looking around the world, and part of this is the story of international students coming to our country to do postgraduate work in particular over decades, and encouraging them to stay mm-hmm. and be part of putting their brain power into our scientific endeavour as a country. So I think often of the story of Professor Ian Fraser, who's at the University of Queensland. He's the uh, gentleman, of course, who uh, along with a Chinese national who came, Dr. Zhangzhou, who's now um, passed away, uh, the two of them worked on what would become the Gardasil vaccine mm. against cervical cancer, saving the lives of millions of women and girls eventually across the world uh, by rolling out this sort of um, uh, vaccine that guards against the papilloma virus. And their insight into it's this virus that causes this. Uh, led them to a vaccine path for that particular virus. So having that brilliance of talent from other parts of the world uh, harnessed into our system here in this country is really important. Um, But we do find ourselves at a moment, I think, where there's an invitation here for us to think about how do we safeguard that scientific capability for the long haul now, knowing that vulnerability.
0: Well, let's talk about that. Okay, because it's... um, uh, it seems strange to me that a government that is um, very preoccupied with security and uh, with sovereignty—you uh, know—we we, let me step back a bit. Right, uh, the pandemic is sort of—it's a global problem, but it's kind of highlighted the vulnerability of global systems then we've seen this rise of the nation in terms of responses to the pandemic, and that's just been a really interesting dynamic in the pandemic. So we've seen Scott Morrison uh, talking about sovereignty, talking about the pandemic response as an act of sovereignty and an expression of sovereignty. But I never hear about the... Go- I, I never, ever hear the government talk about safeguarding Australia's intellectual capacity in... Uh, In those same terms, you know, we've seen this strange, well, neglect is too strong a word because there has been support for the university sector, but, you know, they've been left outside of JobKeeper, you know, the Vice Chancellors are tearing their, their hair out around the country. What do you make of all of that?
1: Well, look, I think um, one thing I would put into that sort of frame for you is um, Karen Andrews is the industry and science and technology minister. She has made a number of really... Key statements in, across the last couple of months calling for stronger sovereign capability in Australia, not just in a manufacturing context, but thinking about what does sovereign capability in its in a broader sense look like, and pointing out that she certainly sees a key role for science and technology as enablers of the sort of job creation task that that confronts us, kind of concurrently with the keeping people safe while we hope and pray that the vaccine hunters can kind of, Mm, you know, do their work to successful fruition. Mm, mm. Um, So I I don't think it's outside of those bounds. I mean, I absolutely think that scientific capability is part of our, you know, national security in a sense, because um, it's about um, the capability that we have here within our country to keep people safe and to save lives, which actually probably would fairly fit fit squarely within that definition. Mm. Um, the point about um, when we think about sort of investments in um, in the research system as a whole, I'm really interested by having followed quite closely what's been happening in the UK in recent mm, years. Tell um, me about that. So in 2017, the UK government, which is a conservative government, looked around the world and <clears throat> um, other advanced economies, so across the OECD group of advanced economies, uh, on average they invest around 2.4% of their the size of their economy mm-hmm. into research and development. And that's public public investment through governments. It's also private sector and then universities and, and parts of the public research effort as well. And they were at 1.7% They didn't, had been uh, in a state of decline. And so they basically agreed to have a 10-year plan to really ramp up their in public investment in research and development capability. Mm. So the, the big fruits of that are starting to kind of wash through their budget processes now under Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the UK. So the last budget just in May, they've had a 15% uplift in R&D investment out of government uh, expenditure. And over the next three years, I think it is, its it is it. Basically doubles to $22 billion in the public investment they're making to snare their country and their economy a bigger share mm. of the future income streams that are going to come from clever RD innovations. And I'm thinking here particularly around something called deep tech, which is Ooh, essentially the fancy about, pants term. Whoa, tell me about deep tech. <laughs> which is basically um the uh you know the inside the beltway term for um technology-based innovation companies that are founded out of a scientific insight, essentially. Right. Um, so we've got some terrific examples here in Australia as well. There's a there's an incubator out at, um, in, in Sydney called Cicada Innovations that are part of our membership structure, and their job is to take scientists and engineers and people who are working in um, all sorts of really incredibly clever um, scientific innovation and work out how to turn that into an innovation that becomes... A product, an income stream, a source of jobs, a clever startup for our country, mm. and keep the IP and yeah. the returns oh, here God, in Australia. Can you imagine? So, you know, more of that at scale, I think, would be a really clever thing for us to, to to think about as a country and to seize an opportunity here, and particularly as people are starting to have those conversations about, well, how do we create an economic recovery for the country? We should actually actually put our STEM capabilities as a country squarely in the centre of that frame because that kind of um, innovation that comes out of a STEM skill set and those kinds of leaps, leaps and, and bounds in knowledge will give us the kind of high wage jobs and more secure kind of economic base for the country that I think every Australian would, would you know, be delighted if we
0: can pull off. But then think about this, love, um, a couple of, well, not this election just gone. I think the one before that, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, never, never never a more exciting time. <laughs> Uh, you know, Malcolm Turnbull uh, in that election campaign tried to energise the country around this idea about of Australia sort of, uh, well, kind of crashing through middle power status, you know, sort of being a powerhouse basically of R&D, of tech, of all of this sort of stuff, you know, the Silicon Valley of, of this hemisphere or whatever else, right, is genuinely enthused. You will remember this well. Uh, <laughs> but then afterwards... It seemed in in the wash up because we we all remember how that election went. Uh, the, the government hung on by one seat. Uh, in the wash up, there seemed to be a, a, a quite substantial retreat from the idea of um, you know uh, putting brain power at the centre of, uh, of of Australian the Australian economy and industry. Now, I sort of say that flippantly, but. What uh, the feedback that uh, people sort of uh, gave us at the time was that uh, people, uh, people in the community who have been through thirty years of structural adjustment, sometimes equate progress in inverted commas technological or otherwise with uh, job destruction. So, while our friend Malcolm had never been more excited to to, to tour the incubators of the, of the country. Um, it fell flat, so I think there might have been a few other things going on in that election I, I completely just, agree with yes, you, my love. But, yes. uh, but I'm just, I'm just trying to, I'm trying you and I mm. to nut this yep. one out, right? So mm. here's where I think uh, there's a
1: there's a a broader frame on that conversation, which is around. The role that potentially technology and science can play in uh, strengthening and safeguarding some of our traditional industry sectors. So rather than thinking about this as a sort of bifurcated conversation where you sort of say, well, we either do these uh, th- these traditional strengths of the Australian industry, so agriculture and mm. mining and yeah. construction and manufacturing, older, old, older old type style. manufacturing, yeah. or we do the sort of... Um, those sort of scientific or other, you know, really high-tech innovations, thinking about, well, actually, are there ways in which we can bring that technological innovation into the traditional industry strengths for Australia to modernise, to digitise, to um, continue to have that be a a really important foundational part of our economic mix and the job, job picture here in our country? And I think there's some really exciting possibilities there, that perhaps can land in a in in a frame where people see them not as a departure from our traditional strengths, but as a a, a bolsterer, a strengthener, a set of tools to uh, sustain jobs that are really important in in big parts of the country.
0: Mm. And also, I mean, flip side of that. Okay, so maybe maybe there's a middle ground. Is your is your answer? Maybe maybe there's a way of trying to re- reassure people that science is a job adder rather than a job subtractor in, in the in the prism we're talking about right and, and
1: it is that, yes. that's what the actual well, evidence facts. and facts tell us facts? show us yeah you're talking about yeah. facts
0: on my show <laughs> 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 evidence uh what, old do think? Fashioned. what are you thinking? yes um, okay <laughs> so so there's there's um, mm-hmm. There's a good thought, Um, but then um, you've also sort of got to occupy or you've got to uh, refocus political minds on this uh, and you've rightly pulled me up on Karen Andrews um, being an advocate for science and the science minister, right? But you've you've sort of got to, um, in the middle of a pandemic where politicians are kind of punching through massive days just trying to you know, churn through what needs to happen. Do you think there's enough bandwidth to engage both the public and the and the political constituency about having another go at never a more exciting time in a some sort of rebooted format?
1: Well, I think I think we have to seize this opportunity, right? I don't I don't see it as a choice not to because um, when we look at the way in which um, new industry growth is happening globally those sorts of STEM skill-enabled businesses and sectors are where sort of bigger scale job growth is going to come from Mm. and these incredibly exciting technologies, some of which are well beyond my sort of specialist expertise. Um. Uh, in, in specific disciplines of the sciences, but the sort of frontier knowledge of things that we couldn't even have imagined 10, 20 years ago that could become treatments and tests and all sorts of innovations um, are where we will see strong job creation. And then the question for Australia becomes not, Will there be jobs in those things? Yes, there will be. Mm-hmm. There will be. The question for Australia then becomes: are we going to have a share of those jobs? Or well, are we going to let them happen in other countries else. that are economic competitors? That's
0: the real choice no, for no, no. us. Well, exactly. That is exactly the choice. But there's also then a lot of back office investment, isn't there? I mean, there are there are obviously fantastic um institutions in this country, brilliant universities, uh, brilliant teaching in the in those universities, brilliant people in those universities. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the sector, and you know, we touched on this a second ago, right? The sector, the the sector is deprived of income of foreign students at this point. Um, it it has struggled massively during the pandemic. Um, there's, it's been laid bare, you know, the sort of workforce patterns in the university sector. A lot of people on casual gigs you know not not tenured don't have any job security and it's sort of like it's it's a massive task i'm not talking us down here sister <laughs> to be clear i'm not talking us down but i'm just saying it's it's not only what emerges at the the sort of um the front end we've also got to look at the back end right so um, you know, it's a, it's a big task to try and um, marshal that focus, I guess. It is.
1: And I think we've got to keep an eye always through this period on um, on that talent pool so we don't lose valuable skill and capability here through this period. And I know the Treasurer at the start of this um, talked a lot about sort of bridges to the other side of, of the pandemic in a different context, talking about sort of um, keeping the economy moving. But I think there's a useful way of thinking about this that is about a bridge for our intellectual and scientific capability in this country as well because we can't afford to, to lose the incredible talents of our, particularly our research community through mm. this period mm. and have them lost to the research system potentially forever if they fall out of jobs and um, the, you know, this endeavour in in this moment. I'm always really struck by a stat that is um, something like 57%, so nearly six in 10 of our university R&D workforce is postgraduate students. And these are people who are you know, brilliant uh, higher really? degree students. Oh. I know. It's incredible, isn't it? Um, this is in the research report that was done through Alan Finkel's Rapid Research Information Forum group uh, earlier this year. And I just, I, I sat with that figure a lot because, you know, that's the the scale of the work. And these, these are the people who are doing that, you know, they're doing their own higher degree, but then mm. they're working in the labs doing, you know, running the experiments, getting that data, making sure that it's all right, you know, working then with the senior published researcher to make sure that that the whole research effort in our country keeps moving forward. And, um, you know, my, many of them are on a stipend of wait for it. Twenty-eight thousand dollars mm. a year. So
0: scholarships, yeah, th- yeah,
1: the, the, mm. through the research training program that's run mm. through the Department of Education that Dan Tien, um has oversight of. It's a terrific program. Um, what great bang for buck we get mm. out of that incredible, talented scientific research workforce. Um, you know, that are across all the disciplines, but um, I'm more keenly aware and, and follow the, the work of the scientific disciplines there. And I just think that's an incredible return on investment mm. that we get, and that's our pipeline of future talent. And if we're serious as a country about saying to younger kids, children in in their primary school and high school years now, STEM skills are part of the future, we want you to choose STEM study on the way to STEM careers. Uh, I think we've also got to then show them the security of that pipeline, kind of into and through that sort of the research sector itself, mm. and how um, how job creation will also happen then in in STEM-enabled jobs and industries for the country. Uh, and you've got to do all those things
0: concurrently, in my mind. Yes, you've got to put it all together. Now you've we've uh, we've touched down on workforce, but we can go deeper. I think um, you mentioned obviously there is this risk of the brain drain in the in the sense that. Uh, I, and I'm acutely conscious of this, is of having kids, um, you know, young adult kids uh, and the competition in global labour markets in technology and, and all these kinds of areas. It's just extraordinary, really, um, when you when you see, you know, big tech companies coming through Australia, sweeping up the best and brightest of Australian kids, nicking them off to Microsoft for a couple of years. <laughs> Speaking of an example close to my home, Um, you know, that sort of thing, right? Uh, This is, uh, that's just, that's obviously IT. That's just one discipline, but it's just, anyway, I'm just very conscious this happens, right? So uh, I know exactly the brain drain you're talking about and uh, and the risks associated with a country that doesn't appear sufficiently committed to their endeavour. You know, these, these kids will go elsewhere. These people will go elsewhere. It is a big problem. So, but recently you surveyed the science workforce uh, in Australia didn't you as part of um, uh, one of your exercises for working out where science is which Mm. is where, where this conversation started so Tell us about that. What did that survey turn up?
1: So this is something that we do uh, every year, but this year um, with Professionals of Scientists Australia and Science and Technology Australia, and we, um, we, we ask a whole range of questions around working conditions and, and wages and, and the sort of broader circumstances of, of scientists across, across the nation. Uh, and this time around, we actually ask them a whole lot of COVID-specific questions about what has been the direct impact of this pandemic on your experience? And perhaps, um, uh, unsurprisingly, one of those key things was that um, many of those who were parents juggling uh, homeschool the delights of distance <laughs> learning supervision at home, whilst, strangely struggled, whilst mm. also trying to maintain a big and serious research job uh, <laughs> and write grant applications for competitive funding grants because this is the other sort of um, uh, cycle
0: in which researchers are, you know, are in. Tell, having... tell people a little bit about that because I, I reckon a lot yeah. of people would have no idea about that. Yeah. Just so I, we'll just yes. pause there briefly. Tell yes. tell people about that.
1: So the way research is funded in our country is through this sort of um, quite Byzantine architecture really. Um, But there are a couple of big major funding grants uh, pots. So there's some sort of baseline funding that comes into universities and other research institutions and then they obviously get some money uh, from uh, the private sector to do collaborative research. But a big stream of that income comes in the form of competitive research grants. So the Australian Research Council and the National Health and Medical Research Council have these sort of vast, you know, Mm. have have a, a pot of money and they invite applications from people, uh, to from researchers to put in kind of collaborative uh, efforts to sort of say, oh, you know, I would like to be funded for a three-year project to develop this capability to this next stage of development. Mm. Um, and that goes through a competitive process. There's a rigorous peer review process around that, and then ultimately things get recommended forward for funding. Uh, but the strike rate on that is um, uh, is quite challenging for researchers because, and I don't have the maybe. Mm. Me Figures mm-hmm. to hand, but um, it can be a quite a laborious, time-consuming task of writing these incredibly rigorous applications mm. just to renew your funding. And for many researchers, so this is their salary. So it's like imagine in any other context where y- you get hired to do a job, but you're actually then having to write, a, you know, beg a for the money to do the grant yeah. every couple of years yeah. to, to to be to... able to continue to fund your own salary and that of your team. Yeah, and so that's what people face, and they're doing that whole administrative load on top of this incredibly exciting research that they're having to, you know, that they're doing and and, and spending large amounts of their hours on. And then also you throw into the mix being at home with kids, with young children, being supervised. So, um, you know, that's been an enormous part of the lived experience of the science workforce in our country. Um, We also saw that about one in 20 of those who were surveyed said that they'd either had not had a contract not renewed or had lost a job during this period. Mm. Um, Some had had their hours cut around one in 10. Um, but the one sort of note of optimism in this whole thing, we also asked them uh, about their thoughts on um, what that what their assessment was of of the general confidence and trust and and um, uh, regard of the of the public at large for the endeavour of scientists. and and a majority of them, so sort of around six in ten said that they felt Australians now valued science more mm. Mm. as a consequence of the lived experience of watching science play its incredible role to save lives and and be part of the front and center work of, of us navigating this extraordinary pandemic
0: well that's the thing and maybe that's this is that this is the point that'll bring us to the conclusion in this conversation it's sort of um, you know and it's kind of neatly beginning where we started it's um, I've I've been naysaying in this conversation or reality checking this scale of the endeavor but maybe maybe the difference between, the never more exciting time tour of Australia in 2016 and a reboot of that for contemporary times is maybe science has proved its value to a substantial proportion of the community. Dare we be that hopeful?
1: Well, I, I am that hopeful. Um, science helps us to do all sorts of things. It's going to be the, the pathway to find us new cures and new treatments and answers to questions we haven't even thought to ask yet and innovations and the source of new job creation. Uh, it helps us to see around corners and to anticipate things um, well in advance often. And that's been the, the you know one of the other things out of this experience of this pandemic has been that um, the preparedness of some of our major science institutions, including the CSIRO and others, to look at kind of scenarios a bit like this over years and years has actually positioned us well. It's still been a crazy experience, right? Mm. Um, But Mm. that capability uh, is extraordinary. So I think, you know, we absolutely need to seize that opportunity. We should fund science like our lives depend on it because quite probably they do.
0: Mm. It's a perfect note to end on. Thank you, Mish, for coming on the show. Thank you, as always, to Miles Martignoni, who is my executive producer, and to Hannah Izzard, who often cuts the program. Parliament will be back next week. God help us all uh, for a fortnight of strange COVID sittings. We'll be back with you then.